Before we invented civilization, our ancestors lived mainly out under the sky. Before we devised artificial lights and atmospheric pollution and modern forms of nocturnal entertainment, we watched the stars. There were practical calendar reasons, of course, but there was more to it than that. Even today, the most jaded city dweller can unexpectedly be moved upon encountering a clear night sky, started with thousands of twinkling stars. When it happens to me all these years, it still takes my breath away. So that's a quote by Carl Sagan, who wrote Pale Blue Dot, a vision of the human future in space. So welcome to episode five. This is Light Cities and Architecture. Um, which is a podcast where we explore those three topics. Um, my name is Jackson Stigwood. I'm a lighting designer in Melbourne and joining me is... Uh, my name is Anthony DeMarze. I'm an architect, a practicing architect in, in Melbourne. And look, I think last time we talked about daylight in the urban environment. And today we're, we're talking about the nighttime sky. And I can recall really vividly growing up in Mildura, seeing those amazing stars in, you know, uh, on summer evenings, just absolutely star-filled um, nighttime environment, you know, when I was very young and it, it sort of have a really clear memory of it. Growing up or, you know, moving to the city at a fairly young age, we slowly, we haven't got that same connection to the nighttime sky because we've got, you know, a whole lot of light pollution happening within the urban environment. So. Today's topic is really to delve into what happens when essentially we lose our connection to the nighttime sky. So I guess the first question is, you know, in talking about our connection to the nighttime sky, I think we need to explain what light pollution is and how it came about. It's a relatively recent occurrence because if you think about the history of um, history of human civilization, we've essentially evolved with this day-night cycle where, you know, for 12 hours of the day we're outside, whether we're in an, in an agrarian society where we're, we're farming during the day, coming home at night uh, and living essentially under the stars, we've sort of moved away from that, mainly through the advent of artificial light or electric lighting. So Electric lighting first came about about 120 years ago, but you know it, it's not as though from that point onwards we suddenly lost our connection to the nighttime sky. It's really been through, uh, it's been a relatively recent occurrence where the amount of lighting in our urban environment has increased to such an extent. So Jackson, how would you describe light pollution? Um, to put it simply, I think it's it's light that doesn't have a purpose. So it's light that's escaping or feeding upwards or reflected off a surface into the into the atmosphere or I guess uh, the environment above us. Um, essentially, light that's not being controlled. Um, so what does what that light that goes upwardly? Um, what bearing does it have on us when we're in our city? I mean, if it's going upwardly it really is invisible to us, or is it? Yeah, well, when it hits, well, it gets the atmosphere and sort of rebounds and refracts off all the particles within the atmosphere. atmosphere. Um, that sort of creates a glowing effect, and so we sort of, our eye picks up on that, that glow, and um, 
the contrast of that decreases the contrast of um, the stars behind it. So essentially what's happening is that in a, a, a heavily built up area, let's say like New York or, or Hong Kong or I don't know, London, these very densely built environments, we have a lot of light spilling upwardly and bouncing on the atmosphere, bouncing off buildings, clouds, a whole range of things. And it creates this glow, essentially a glow, and it eradicates our ability to see the stars beyond because the stars are so faint that they simply can't compete or our eye can't visually see those very faint pieces, faint dots of light at night time. Hmm, correct. It's like, I mean, I mean, our, our eyes have a great ability to adjust between a whole array of different levels of um, lighting or illuminance and, um, and we adjust them constantly, you know. So if the stars are quite a delicate source, so it's like an, if you're in a room and you have a bright light source in your ceiling and you have more delicate light sources around it, the bright light source will overpower those and the more delicate ones won't, won't be as visible. So if we're out in the, out in the desert, you know, in a really remote part of the world, our ability to see very faint points of light that, you know, absolutely tiny little specks of light and you see a vast array of light, uh, dots of light in the, in the urban environment, then, you know, you kind of get this sense of how big the universe is, how, you know, amazing the, the universe that we live in is. And I imagine that, you know, in as we evolved in, as a species, that being connected to the nighttime starts sky is very much connected to our sense of uh, spirituality, uh, wonder, science, trying to work out what those points of light actually are, you know, building stories around it, a whole range of things come about through just wonder, the wonderment of actually seeing the nighttime sky. So um, it, it puts, you know, I think our evolution as a species is very much connected to how we view the the sky yeah and i think we've had that relationship for you know for a very long time and um it's you know used as a wayfinding tool historically um yeah it's definitely present in um many different cultures it has a cultural significance um but it, i think it's it's always been mesmerizing and enchanting as well so it's always made us feel a little bit insignificant in comparison to what exists beyond where we live. So this seems like, you know, something that maybe goes back a long way or, you know, something that is historically correct. But if we think about the evolution of, of our species, um, electric lighting is really only a, the evolution of doc, uh, electric lighting is only a really small part of what we've you know how we've evolved as a species i mean you know thousands and thousands of years of living essentially outside and you know in daylight and then coming home at night time electric lighting first was established about 120 years ago but even in the early in the beginnings of electric lighting it's, it wasn't as prevalent our cities weren't as weren't lit in the same way that they are being lit today so it was really i would guess in the last 20 or 30 years that our cities have become so incredibly bright 
that we are getting essentially a glow of light around the planet, around the city. And that means that when we inhabit the city, we have less ability to connect to the nighttime sky. Mm. I think it's been a, it's been a combination of um, lighting technology. Like obviously we have LED technology, which has been around for you know, 20 years or so. Um, and we've had multiple forms of technology that were invented before that, that sort of generated a lot more light than we traditionally were able to produce. And I think the cost of this technology is also is, is decreased as well. So it's become more affordable. Um, and cities also use it as a way of, um, I suppose, bringing extra economy into their cities because if they have a vibrant nighttime environment, um, it brings people out and they spend money, they interact, and it just you know creates more more economy within a city. And I think also the the growth of lighting specific events or cultural events that you know um, sort of wrap lighting into it. So whether it's projection festivals or it could be yeah many many different cultural festivals. So light light in effect has become a kind of entertainment. It's become mm. a way of extending the day into the night. So we can do more things at night. We can, you know, socialize. We can work at night. There's a whole lot of shift workers working at night because of electric lighting. Many things were simply not possible to do at night because there was no, no uh, lighting to make those tasks um, possible. So we've extended the reach of the our daytime activities into the night. Um, and it's really interesting when you look at the city from, you know, you know the images of city of the planet from satellites or you know when you're flying in from overseas or you know wherever, you're able to see you're able to map out the form of the city just by looking at the lights and predominantly the lights that you're seeing are, are um, street lights. The the density of the city is apparent to you. The shape of the city is apparent to you. And in many ways, the planet resembles a small star at night from, you know, from outer space, I would imagine. Mm. And yeah, it's, it's definitely getting, um, it's glowing brighter and brighter every year as mm. there's some um, interesting sites that um, take radiance images of the Earth at night. So satellite images, but taking at night and they measure the radiance, which is the amount of light um, coming off of that space. Um, and stitching them all together. So they kind of look like heat maps and they've sort of stitched them together over the last 15 years and there's considerable growth in, in yeah, nearly all cities around the world. Mm. So well, Europe, I, I mean, I've seen images of Europe where effectively from one side of Europe to the other side of Europe, from the top to the bottom, essentially there is a, 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 a continuous... Uh, level of illumination across the whole continent of lighting mm. more dense in urban centers and then just a little less dense as you move away from it but it you know right across the planet you could map out the whole continent essentially through lighting so if, if we push that trend out another 50 years what do you think happens well that's a very good question um it's you know it's it's a it's an open-ended question because what I suppose that really comes back to the future of lighting and, and, and whether we recognise this as, a, as, a, as an issue or not. So I guess there's a number of 
there's probably a number of other reasons we need to consider why do we need to why do do we light our cities to such an extent um, you've talked about you know the idea that we a whole economy is based on lighting our cities at night there's always been a sense that having a well-lit street or a well-lit city provides safety mm. uh, and you know, there's obvious reasons why that's important. Um, what are some of the other reasons that we light our city? I mean, it seems to me that it's a display of wealth, a display of uh, affluence. Uh, you've mentioned the lighting shows, but even just having brightly lit buildings and landmarks being um, being well lit is a way for, you know, whether it's Paris or New York or Melbourne to to say, here we are, we're a big city, we're an important city. Yeah, I think it well, lighting significant buildings and lighting them well at night time definitely creates a layer of beauty within the city at night. So the city almost yeah. takes on a different atmosphere at night by virtue of electric lighting. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's, you know, that's a big draw card for a lot of cities as well. Like if you, you know, if you think of some cities in your mind, then a lot of the images of those cities come to me at, at what they look like at night. Well, um, I mean, you think about, I, I suppose, Times Square or um, places in Hong Kong, um, Tokyo, the nighttime aspect is, it, it, it's, a, it's a form of architecture, the architecture of lighting, isn't it? Mm, definitely. And then it's, it's becoming quite noticeable, like, um, I don't know if you've been to Brisbane in the last couple of years, but... I try and avoid it. Yeah. <laughs> don't avoid it. Um, yeah, they've, they've sort of... They have this, it's such a colourful city at night now. They've, they've sort of really rolled out a lot of um, colour-changing elements across, you know, bridges, towers, um, pedestrian thoroughfares and roads and all, all kinds of things. And you travel through it now, it's just like... It's, it's, it's like a rainbow at night. It's quite... <laughs> It's interesting that they've actually chosen to do that, you know, where other cities have sort of shifted away from colour in more recent years. But we're here to talk about why we shouldn't light our cities at night to, to the same extent that we do. And uh, I, I guess the question is, what happens when you lose the night, the connection to, to the night? And, and this is not an easy question to be asking, but I think it really warrants some investigation because... If you think of a, a young person growing up in an urban environment that's, you know, wherever, essentially they don't get to experience um, the, the majesty of, of um, the nighttime sky and, and, and I guess they don't get to see what, what exists beyond the daytime reality i mean if you think about daytime it essentially lights the immediate um environment to some extent because you can't it, it's a you can't actually look out into the nighttime sky during the day so at night if you're creating a, an environment that doesn't allow you to connect to the nighttime sky your sense of what the world is and what the universe is is strangely restricted so is that such a bad thing i mean what happens when when we lose the night well i can't imagine growing up without it to be honest and 
um, this uh, movie um, uh, A City Dark I think. Mm-hmm. The yeah. City Dark The City Dark I think it was made in 2012 um, it's, a, it's, a, it's still it's still a really relative film I think um, I watched it recently as I know you have as well um, and there's some great quotes in there and sort of thought around this topic and about once we disconnect from the night sky, what does it do, do psychologically potentially to people? Um, and I, I don't think there's been a lot of research that's actually been like done in that area about the psychological effects because it's something that's very difficult to, mm. I suppose, conclusively... Um, it, I think one of the main points of that film was that it, it, it seemed to describe... Uh, a subtle shift in our psychology as a result of not being connected to the nighttime sky mm. and that that shift is happening slowly and progressively as we light our cities more so it's like we're not noticing the changes in our own behavior our own uh, perception of the environment because we are lighting the city to such an extent that we've kind of sort of lost that connection so mm. how can we it's like there's a shifting baseline every year there's more lighting so every year you would assume there's less connection to the nighttime sky so and eventually it disappears and at at that point i think there was the really interesting point in in that movie was that once we remove the ability to sort of be overcome by the nighttime sky the view of it and that feeling of insignificance Mm. um once it disappears then we be very much become focused on our immediate surroundings. Yes. And that sort of internalizes everything. And then we become even more internalized in our thoughts. And we just don't have a process of disconnecting from that or going beyond that. Which I think I is think, a really, yeah. really dangerous place to be. There's certainly a very powerful quote in the film which talked about the connection to the nighttime sky as a way of resetting the ego, of recognizing that we are just a tiny component of the universe and that we sort of realize our own insignificance to some extent but also that we we also recognize the beauty and the the significance of being in the moment and being in this you know very lucky place called earth so that that connection to the cosmos or the connection to the nighttime sky allows us to somehow realize that there is a bigger place out there called the universe uh, that is bigger than our immediate surroundings, our immediate street, our immediate home, our immediate you know surroundings. And to disconnect to that is is a dangerous thing. I think is really what it, where it was steering us to. It wasn't conclusive, but it was sort of saying. I remember there were people in that film expressing concern about what was happening to us as a species. It's, it's kind of really relative to what's happening right now like in melbourne we've just gone today into our second lockdown and so we are spending a lot more time inside and i can't help but relate this to that topic of not not i think it's generally happening a lot within society people are spending more time inside more, more engaging with technology yes and less with the environment and i think that sort of um focus on the self and internalization is sort of already happening Mm. um and the disconnection from the night sky is just one part of it so i guess we're talking on on a a spiritual level on a meta level but there are some 
kind of practical things about a disconnection from the nighttime sky. I mean, uh, some of you may be aware of uh, the circadian rhythm and, and how that influences our well-being. And to, to describe, perhaps to um, give that a little bit of space and time, the, the idea of the circadian rhythm is, you know, we as a species, in fact, many animals as, uh, have evolved with this day-night cycle, you know, this repetitious day-night cycle, you know, where our bodies become more active during daylight, during it's activated by broad-spectrum daylight and we become more um, more restful and more passive shall we say at night time where we where we seek out rest and that that cycle of, of active when it's daylight and, and you know restful when it's night time is not you know a chance thing it's it's actually our our psychology our physiology is driven by that nighttime daytime cycle mm. How does that come about? Well, it's just developed and it's evolutionary bodily function um, that we've lived with this light and dark cycle 24 hours a day for hundreds of thousands of years. So our body, our body regulates itself on that and it regulates its, its hormones, its like it's, it you know, influences its behavior, its emotions. Um, and if you think of the time that we've had electric lighting around 100 years since it's been commercialized is you can't expect our bodies to adapt to having light at night in such a small amount of time in in terms of evolution like it's only been 120 years that we've started to introduce this at night so So our bodies are definitely going okay well this isn't right they're trying to adjust to it and we can see this in all the research it's really really interesting and, and more recently, they've discovered that, in fact, part of the human eye is receptive to uh, daylight, to the blue spectrum of, of daylight, which is called the ganglion receptor, I believe. And that that, that receptor is, is directly connected to um, a very important part of the brain, which, which regulates both the production of melatonin um, and our sense of being active during the day. So physiologically, physiologically, we've developed with this day-night cycle. Now, if we introduce artificial lighting, which was you know, virtually impossible to do before electric lighting, there were torches, there was fire and all those sorts of things, um, our body is kind of still thinking it's daytime. Our body is not producing melatonin, which helps induce sleep. So, you know, our bodies are saying, oh, okay, it's nine o'clock at at night, but it's actually my body's telling me it's daytime, so I'm not going to go to sleep for the next two hours. So the sense of daytime is going far beyond, say, 12 hours and going to 15, 16, 17, 18 hours a day before we start to get into that restful mode. The implications of this is, is can be poor health outcomes. And look, with the, with the advent of technology, smartphones, you know, iPads and all these sorts of things, we are seeing children, you know, having to take melatonin to go to sleep, really disrupted sleep patterns. And this is kind of all around the sort of urban environments that we're creating, the connection to, to, day, the connection to lighting, artificial lighting, the connection to technology is driving a very different way of living, which is having 
uh, an impact on us from a health perspective. I mean, there's, there was a suggestion in that film, The City Dark, that um, breast cancer in women is, the incidence of breast cancer in women is, is higher amongst those that, you know, are doing shift work. Um, they originally thought it had something to do with diet, but they now believe um, that it could have something to do with the incidence of light spectral in the day. diet. So it um, it's an issue, I think, that as designers and as architects and lighting designers, we need to really consider this as a um, as an option. What the ramifications of having such brightly lit cities means in the future. So we know that the we have evolved with that day-night cycle, essentially thousands and thousands of years, where essentially we've had you know, uh, we've we've been very active during the day and more restful at night, um, and you know this is not by chance. Uh, the human body seem is is really designed to to have that kind of restful and, and active sort of cycle from day to night. So do you want to explain how this occurs? Um, well, yeah, our body's evolved with a, a light-dark cycle. So if we sort of think of the light as in when the sun's up and dark when it's not. Um, and our eye has evolved to be receptive to this. So our eye receives essentially um, the wavelength of light, which is the colour and also the intensity of light, so the, how much light. Um, and our eye uses that to scan the, the urban environment um, or the environment that it's in. Um, and signals from the wavelength of light that it's being received and the intensity um, essentially regulate our hormonal and behavioral and emotional responses. So um, I guess if you think about it, you know, the, the, we've evolved over thousands of years with this basically this day-night cycle, which is referred to as the circadian rhythm. And it's only been in relatively recent times that we've changed that cycle by introducing uh, light, abundance level, uh, an abundant level of lighting. And you'd have to say technology with, you know, smartphones, computers and iPads and things like that, screens, that in effect the body is uh, that, that kind of cycle of day and night has been disrupted because essentially our access to light has been increased um, by, you know, several hours in each day. So the implication of that is that the essentially the, the human body can become confused about the idea of am I meant to be asleep now or am I meant to be active? So, you know, 12 hours of daylight becomes for the human body, you know, 13, 14, 15, 16, 18 hours worth of light. And we're not allowing ourselves the opportunity to go to sleep and rest um, before a new day emerges. Mm. And yes, having our bodies have done this for such a long time. Um, we're talking, you know, hundreds of thousands of years. Um, 
and in the matter of 120 years we've started to do well i'd say less than that because it's really it's really only in the last 20 or 30 years where the lights really become super abundant yeah correct well definitely i haven't been exposed to light for 120 years (laughs) that's true so um and yeah it, it, it this this is how our body regulates so when the sun went down so did the lighting level and the color of the spectrum shifted and that told our bodies and to, that it's you know getting ready for sleep so it started to secrete melatonin which is we know as the precursor to us falling asleep um so now when we when we sit in an environment that's artificially lit or electrically lit or where we have our smartphone device after the sun has gone down our eye gets confused and says okay well this is it's it's giving me the same spectral color as in the day or a similar spectral color and it's giving me a high intensity therefore it's sending a signal to the brain saying well it's it's still daylight so don't mm. send us melatonin they did not secrete melatonin and melatonin is a is a precursor to sleep it's a hormonal response to allow us that allows us to go to sleep and and this this may sound all very theoretical but it's 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 a reality for children my my son um, in particular is very connected to technology dragging him away from technology and getting him to go to sleep is a major effort each day each night so and he's certainly not alone we've we're seeing a whole lot of uh, young people and older people affected by technology a day in day out so the abundance of light electric lighting as a I guess as a consumable item, you know, in the same way we think of food, is actually having some impact on us uh, in, in terms of health. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, this is, this has sort of been a, a research topic for a few years now in, in understanding how the eye works, which they're still doing, and the levels of light that which trigger the, which you know, influence it, and and the actual spectral colors and everything. But there's a lot of research now into sort of the effects of not getting enough sleep or the right sleep during the right time of day. And I mean, we all know that sleep is when our, our body tends to repair itself. And it's, it's, it's just such a vital part of a healthy lifestyle. Mm. And once so, you start to interrupt this, then it just causes so many issues down the line. And that's what we're starting to understand now as it just influences a whole array. So, the dark sky movement so to conclude tonight today's episode the dark sky movement is has a kind of an astronomical astrological astronomical sort of side to it it's about people connecting to the nighttime sky it's about people going out with telescopes and being able to to see the milky way and and, and about to be able to see constellations but it actually goes a lot further than that doesn't it? It, it it's really about has a kind of few dimensions to it in that on one hand it's about getting regaining our access to the nighttime sky but it's also very much about the sort of the 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 way in which we live in the city and the way that we access a, a connection to a dark a darker environment at night for health reasons mm. and if we don't have access to it and we like I remember when I, f- I, I first moved to Melbourne, I, b- I bought a telescope actually, and I, I could I could stargaze like I could see planets basically and the, and the moon, which is a, um, and I remember seeing Jupiter for the first time and its its moons. Wow. Um, and it wasn't. I mean, it was a 
I think a telescope that was about $500. So it wasn't overly or $600 or something. It wasn't overly expensive, but, and when people came around to my house, I'd often, I'd often show if Jupiter was in rotation and you could see it, I'd show them as well. And just the expression of people when they first saw this, like they would literally turn back out of the telescope and sort of have this dumbfound effect on their face of like, is that real? Like, am I really seeing moons going around another planet out there? Like, is that it up point to it? So, it really makes you think beyond your current situation and thinks like what's possible like yeah. what's next where are we going like what else can we do well one could only imagine what galileo must have thought when he saw you know the stars or, or saw those planets it, it, it is it changes your world view it changes you have suddenly the experience of an expanded horizon mm. and i suppose we as a species have kind of evolved with that sense that anything's kind of anything's possible because we can see beyond our immediate environment so i think it it plays a role in our ability to think to be imaginative and 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 the film the city dark is highly recommended because it poses a question that i think is really relevant is that and there's a real concern in the film is that that what's happening to us as a species when we are losing that connection to the nighttime sky it 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 worries about the impact on our health but it also worries about the impact on our psyche to not be able to imagine the world beyond our immediate surroundings mm. and looking at data when you read things now it's like well 80 percent of the global population is living in some form of light polluted atmosphere mm. uh, environment um it's like well if this disappears then it's a really i, don't, I can't imagine it there's a funny scene in the film i mean it is a documentary but it, it, it essentially interviews a whole range of individuals and um one one story is uh that, that i found really interesting is uh a scientist visits a planetarium in, in New York and the name of which escapes me um, and sees the nighttime sky you know he lives in an urban environment and could only see one or two stars at night and had never really contemplated what what the nighttime sky looked like goes to a planetarium sees this amazing array of lights you know starlight and thinks you know that's just that's just a joke it can't possibly be that bright you know just discounts it as a complete fantasy eventually visits you know goes to a mountaintop sees the nighttime sky and um, realizes that you know in reality it wasn't a joke that it is actually as beautiful as he'd seen in that planetarium um and you know he just you know he says the night that nighttime <laughs> sky reminds me of the planetarium yes that's right that was what i was trying to get to <laughs> is that he goes out into the scars and he goes not as good as the planetarium i used to go to so you know it's um we kind of a, our experience of reality is kind of uh in some ways through technology through through the through film and a whole range of different technologies but you know our connection i think what's really interesting i suppose why i'm driven to talk about that story is that in a way our experience of reality is, is always through the lens of other people through through film through technology through stories one of the really amazing things about the nighttime sky and in fact you know going out into nature you know 
is that you have this very direct relationship to it it's a personal relationship it's it's not through the lens of another person that your experience is your experience so you know for children growing up for for adults who are living with you know working hard and doing lots of things you know having that connection to things that are you know in a sense real and um, almost ancestral i think is really important to our sense of well-being mm. and it's creating programs that um, i suppose promote this and are, provide pathways for, for children that might live in a you know heavily light polluted environment to mm. actually go out into the countryside and experience a nighttime sky indeed it's mm. very hard for um for city dwellers some city dwellers to actually actually access nature you know whether mm. it be because of transport a lot of a lot of young children are actually fearful of going out into nature because they're not used to it mm. there's a beautiful scene in the film um which is when they take a group of boy scouts out into the wilderness and um it's lovely it's a really beautiful scene i mean the, the children are probably eight to ten years old they're very urban children you know and uh their scout leader is you know a, a, i presume a dad or something and he freely acknowledges that he's you know has no great knowledge of of the nighttime sky but feels that it's really important to get the kids out into that that environment and you know look they go out they they look at the stars and and then you know the way they talk about it was really beautiful wasn't it it's just uh you know it's so big it's so you know so beautiful one day i'd like to visit them or you know sort of go out into space kind of thing it's really lovely mm. yeah you can see the their very urban personalities yes. have kind of shifted really quickly because they are ama- like but that, that's what happens when you see something that is as enchanting and beautiful as mm. the nighttime sky it does it does have that effect on you it makes you think a little bit differently a little bit more romantically i suppose is mm, a good way absolutely to put it. i think the uh, and the other thing that was really interesting about the film was that you know like it talked it, it's essentially based in new york for the um the documentary the documentary maker is is based in new york and so he, he starts to ponder how far from the city you need to travel in order to 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 start to get access to the nighttime sky and this is one of the things that is really incredible you know you need to travel a long way from say a place like new york to actually get a nice a, a decent nighttime sky and you know he, he's 100 100 miles from you know from New York and you start to get that access to the, to the, to the stars and yeah. one of the one of the um, one of the ideas that's expressed in the film is you know people who live in the city there should be an expectation that leaving the city you can get access to the stars or to the nighttime sky like it, it's probably reasonable not to expect it in the middle of a dense city to see the stars but is it <laughs> well maybe not but i, I guess the the point of the, the the discussion in the film was you know it's reasonable to have an expectation that when you leave the city that you regain access to the nighttime sky mm. the other thing about the film that i thought we're probably getting off track here but it, it, it delves very deeply into the impact on nature on sea turtles on bird life and so forth that that it's not just humans that are impacted by um, the impact of light in the cities mm, i mean yeah it's very similar to how we explained before about 
how light influences our bodies is that it's doing the same thing to wildlife and biodiversity as well because they've evolved with us with the dark light cycle and the artificial light or the the electric light that's being produced at night is having similar detrimental effects on wildlife and biodiversity in the same way that it's affecting humans it's uh, having a massive impact as we build closer and closer to our uh, natural environments uh, bird life uh, sea turtles you know a whole range of nocturnal animals are impacted by by urbanization in in, in effect so I mean, this movie was produced in yeah 2012. It was actually released in 2012, yes. so it was produced probably prior to that. And yet it covers all these issues. And since then, um, there's been a lot more research that has been done in uh, on the effects on biodiversity, wildlife, humans, and things like this. Um, so it's it's really within, especially within the lighting design community, it's 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 been talked about a lot about what we can do. And with this new understanding of all the research that's being done, it's it's kind of brings a new responsibility about... I couldn't agree more. I mean, in the film, he describes, um, you know, the, inf- the impact of lighting an area is almost like bulldozing an area of its, of its you know, natural habitat. That, that's the impact that, you know, bad lighting can have on an urban environment, on a natural environment. Mm. And, yeah, well, the... I think the World Health Organization, due to the increased risk, health risk of shift work, classified light at night as a carcinogen, I think two years ago. Don't hold me to that. But um, <laughs> Well, I remember going to a, a seminar which, was, which talked about this idea of light hygiene, that in a sense, uh, the idea that you regulate, personally regulate, the intake of lighting. I mean, I'd never sort of heard of this as an idea. It's not something I've heard very much, but I was kind of curious about it. The idea that in our homes, we you know, start to regulate how much lighting we have after a certain time. And perhaps we consider the, um, the, 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 the color temperature of light, the mm. level of lighting at different times of the day so that our body can kind of regain some form of control mm. over that that rhythm that we talked about earlier and it's it's a fascinating topic yeah definitely and i suppose as people become more aware of it there's um a lot of products and things that are being released that claim to mitigate it or protect you from it or um which is is really becoming a hard space to navigate so you're talking about um uh, what's the term that's being used a lot um, in lighting at the moment, which <laughs> <laughs> um, what is it? Human-centric, human-centric oh, lighting. Oh yeah, I wasn't so, so much talking about actual light fittings themselves, but also like you know films being placed on optical lenses for your glasses, saying it's a, it's a film that blocks blue light spectrum. So in things like this, and it's like, well, blue is actually quite important to <laughs> in regulating your melatonin levels. So you don't want to block it all out because then, you know, you'll have issues in the day as well. So I think that, I mean, that's predominantly to try and mitigate from looking at a screen all day. Sure. Um, It doesn't do it from all different angles. Do you think think the lighting industry have been um, 
entirely honest with the public. <laughs> well, I think if you look at any industry that produces products and you ask the same question, then it will, you'll get a very similar answer. If someone can sell something based on saying something or pointing to a piece of research, um, but it's, yeah, there's, I mean, you really need to look at sort of the research that universities are doing, which is clinical um, with different properties of light and different light sources and the results that they're getting as opposed to say Philips Hue releasing a lamp saying oh it, you know it's it's going to help you sleep better yeah so so there is a there's a high degree of spin coming out of lighting manufacturers is what I'm hearing from you in, in terms of yeah it's a trending topic that it's people a trending are becoming topic. more aware of so if you can attach a product to that and I think this is really where the role of design comes into it dare I say it you know and we'll probably touch on that in our next episode but it's it's it uh, we have a lighting industry which is a very powerful industry I think it's a very wealthy you know it's a very you know it's a lot of money is made through lighting there's a lot of lights in the world. And there are a lot of lights in the world. So it has a massive impact on our urban environment. So the desire to keep lighting our environment has to be mitigated against by people like you, Jackson. So you better save the world. <laughs> well, I think it just needs to be more people to be aware. So people like yourself as well. <laughs> anyone, that's, anyone that's creating an environment and placing lights in it needs to be more aware of it and more responsible. I mean, look, we could go on about this for days but it, it strikes me that there is no regulation of lighting that well sorry I shouldn't say that because there, there is, is regulation around <laughs> lighting but it does I'm always struck by if I stand in a street corner in a busy urban environment there are probably 30 or 40 light sources that are lighting any given point in that mm. time in that place each kind of have their own <laughs> regulatory environment that they're working within whether it be a street light or a signage or a indoor light or what have you uh, and no one really kind of reconciles the different forms of lighting on any particular area so I guess from an urban design point of view um, I'm struck by how little master planning or design integration actually occurs around lighting in our urban environments now perhaps that's a, a case here in Australia maybe it's different overseas but it seems to me a, a difficult space to navigate oh, I think well it's a, it's a really interesting topic that you've brought up um, and uh, yeah I'm constantly trying to navigate that environment as well and a few projects that I'm working on now are dealing with elements within the urban environment but what you realize is when you're working on one element within the urban environment, which, you know, in my case, it's signage at the moment. Mm -hmm. So we're just dealing with signage. Electric signage, lighting. Yeah, lighting illuminated with, signage. Yeah. And Sorry, illuminated then if, signage. Yeah, if you go to a street corner, as you were saying before, then you have the traffic lights. Um, you have might have some facade lighting. You might have the street lights. You might have the car lights. The, tr the tram station might have some lighting to it. The bus shelter might have some lighting to it. You might have a digital facade within the opposite square. Then you might have internal lighting that's spilling out of buildings into the space as well. Is that the who owns all of this? these lighting elements is completely different. Some are privately owned, some are publicly owned. Um, and they all fall under different criteria of regulation um, and d design requirements. So it's, yeah, to be able to coordinate all that within an urban environment, I, and it would be, would be lovely to actually 
you know, be able to do, but I mean, it's an enormous task because there's just such an array of different regulations that apply to each one and you know, who owns them on the different municipalities. Like some of them are the, you know, like state roads and some of them are local roads. Some of them are publicly owned buildings. Some of them are privately owned buildings. It's just a complete, complete. The thing that strikes me about the urban environment and, and nighttime lighting is that in a sense we've created this different, very different environment to the daytime, you know, and a, a sort of, I would argue, a, a sort of confused environment where light sources are coming from different different angles and so forth. And it would seem to me that the period of time during the day where it there needs to be more regulation or more control given is really in that time between say five and say eight o'clock at night you know I think that our if you think about Italian societies and or towns where you know at that sort of point in the day there's the passeggiata there's the the, the people go out to the town square socialize and kind of generally interact in a fairly informal way the ability to connect to the city's architecture the, the the environment around you i think is really important and i think that one of the failings of um i guess a modern society is that we've tended to take that away by essentially over lighting our cities mm. that's yes yeah, another really interesting point um it reminds me of some information recently we gathered for a report which we should have looked at the percentage of living things and when they are predominantly active um, and I think about during the daytime only about 20% of all living life is active 80% um, of it is either during that twilight period mm. or they're nocturnal um, and most things are active during that twilight period, which is the period that you were just talking about, which really is probably the most beautiful part of a day. I agree. I mean, I think we're talking about the nighttime sky, by the way, and we're talking now about a different part of the... That transition period, the sort of golden hour, and we're really blessed here in Melbourne because we are at a lower altitude than you got, than, than people in Brisbane. <laughs> um, <laughs> you could get a lot I mean, essentially, essentially, in a place like Melbourne, you get a very, uh, you get a slightly elongated golden hour, should we call it that that sunset and sunrise period, where you get the transition from day to night is a is a slower transition. So you get the the very subtle colour shifts in 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 the in the sky, and I personally think it's a really beautiful thing to observe. Um, but we are, you know. And, and, and that coincides with the end of our working day, typically say five, five thirty, six o'clock, you know, be it summer, be it winter, you have that you still have that kind of connection to that that beautiful time of day. We tend to be more social in that period of time. We tend to, you know, actually be much more community minded. And it strikes me that when when we visit cities or during that period we were also getting heavily bombarded at that time in the urban environment with light mm. light pollution and we are not getting to see the wonder of the sky and i think 
I bring this up because, you know, here in Melbourne we have uh, White Knight. And, you know, I went with my family as we What's do. What's White Knight? What's White Knight? It's a light. It's another lighting <laughs> festival. And we will talk about lighting festivals, no doubt. But it is Melbourne's light festival. It was. Where, <laughs> it was. Um, you know, it was very popular. And so people would stay up all night, you know, to go to it. So it really drives people to come out at night. I mean, it's incredible. I mean, the light show is amazing. You know, technology, things that you can't imagine, you know, images and crazy stuff happening. So brings people out it's in it's in it's in um winter so mm. so crowds initially the crowds that were going to white night were just phenomenal it really was and i with my family went uh we 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 got up very early in the morning i think it was about three four o'clock in the morning we went out and visited it and it is truly amazing but the thing that struck me is at about six o'clock uh sunrise occurred and i was thinking well as good as this festival is it has pales into insignificance when you see you know the sunrise <laughs> i mean we see the sunrise every day or if you get up every day you would but it is quite amazing so our disconnection from that is you know somewhat sad dare i say it because it's easier to bring my kids to a, a light festival it's harder to get them up and say let's go and have a look at the, the sunrise yeah no i i totally agree with you i think it's, it's interesting, it's like something that the human creates. So if we create a light festival with projections and things, I think people find it fascinating as a human creation. Yes. They sort of like wonder or like uh, awestruck by our own awesomeness. <laughs> which, <laughs> is a, which is a topic that comes up in the film. It, there's um, one of the speakers talked about, you know, termites and... Uh, uh, bowerbirds and all these sort of creatures that, that create something and and kind of if you take yourself out of your human mind you know you look at humans as a kind of separate species we're saying well look at us we've built cities and we've built lights we've built these incredible places, and we've used technology and yeah we do kind of wonder at our own our our own magnificence don't we mm. well yeah it's, it's, you could look at the other side as well and um it's destructive power. <laughs> so we might leave it there, Jackson. I'm sure this will be heavily edited, but um, I think, you know, the, 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 the nighttime sky um, or maybe that golden hour between sun, uh, day and night, night and day, um, certainly plays a big part in what we do as architects and 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 lighting designers and i'm sure it'll be a topic for further discussion yeah definitely and um i think it's just really important that people start talking about it and start realizing and start looking at their nighttime environment and being critical of it um because we we really do have the technology and we're beginning to understand a lot more about how we should light nighttime environments, how we can control light, how we can turn things off. Um, and we have all the tools to actually create a nighttime environment that's still safe and inviting and you know drives an economy. So it's, it's really about bringing more awareness to that, people understanding it, um, and us taking the steps in the future to sort of, to be responsible and to make the decision now as to whether we want to keep the nighttime sky. Mm -hmm as something that you know, is always accessible. So 
our next episodes, uh, we're going to delve into some different areas, aren't we, Jackson? We're going to actually look at individual architects. We thought we might look into um, architects like, uh, I don't know, a little little known architect called Le Corbusier. And, um, well, we came with this one because we've both been to Ronchamp. We've both been to Ronchamp. We're going to look at Ronchamp and we're going to look at it from the point of view of light. Uh, much uh, heralded building in terms of its use of daylight. Um, it's an incredible building and I can't wait to do the research on that. But we'll, we'll compare his work with some other architects, uh, Louis Kahn and possibly Tadeo Ando, and, and look at how individual architects use daylight and sunlight as a a, a tool, a tool for design and mm. how you know how light manifests itself into those into those places sounds good so catch you on the other side jackson will do <laughs>